footnote 97a. Come on, brave people. No, the, the rabbis are dead. They won't be offended. Right, just pause for just one moment. One method of rabbinical hermeneutics is to ask the question, why is there superfluity in a biblical verse? There is an assumption that the rabbis have that there is no superfluous word in Scripture. So if there's no superfluous word, there must be a reason for it, and they're bringing down a tradition that was handed down to them by their teachers about why. So they're talking about a verse that was re where it re referenced both altar and table, and they're saying, wait a second, why is it using these two different words when it means the same thing? Okay, keep going. Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar, that's how you pronounce it. Elazar. What about that radical reinterpretation? You think you're not going to get to, we had the, you guys read, like in Exodus, you guys are in Leviticus 16, so you're reading about the whole, like the whole Yom Kippur ritual, the whole ritual for how you gain atonement. Now God, and, and now the, the rabbis are saying, temple's been destroyed. We have no surety of a priestly class. We have no way, we certainly have no way of ritual purity for the priests. We don't know if we can get those animals. We don't know if we can get those knives. We have this whole big, long ritual on how we get atonement. Rabbis say, you want to get atonement? You have something just as powerful as the altar in the center of the temple, and it's called your kitchen table. Your kitchen table can provide atonement for yourself, your family, and your community can do that through having a sacred meal together. You can have it by bringing the needy into your home and you feeding them. You can have it by celebrating the Sabbath and holidays together as a family. That you can literally have as much power in your home as the high priests did in Jerusalem and before that in the as the tabernacle was wandering. Now think for a moment during those centuries of exile that I was just describing. And all of the horrors that the Jews were faced by their neighbors. Think about studying this when you went to Sunday school and saying, everywhere you go, you're getting the you're living daylights beaten out of you when you go out of our town and you try to cross the street. Everybody tells you that you're the lowest of the low, but let me tell you something. Your Sabbath dinner table, your Sabbath dinner table is as holy as the altar that you read about in Torah. You know, you hear about your Christian neighbors reading in the church and they're trying to recreate everything that they read about in scripture with all, all of the gowns and all the robes and all the everything. <laughs> you can do it yourself at your dinner table. Amazingly powerful um, 
recreation of what you read about in Leviticus. Yes? What's the verse that, that I thought you might ask that. I'm going to have to get back to you. Hold on. Just let me see if I can find it quickly. Give me just one second. I know I should have quoted for more than just that little bit. No, 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 hold on just a second. Give me two seconds, yeah. Ezekiel 41.22. Oh, sorry. Ezekiel, for the altar was of wood three cubits high and its length two cubits and so its corners and its length and its walls were also of wood. And he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. So it says at the beginning of the verse, here's how you build the altar. And then at the conclusion of the verse, it says, this is the table before the Lord. And so they're saying, why is it called an altar at the beginning of the verse and a table at the end of the verse? Okay. Um, since you are reading, um, you did you guys already read verses twenty four through thirty four in chapter sixteen? Yes or no? Who is the smartest student in Pastor Tim's class? <laughs> Pastor Tim. I'm not going to embarrass Pastor Tim by calling on one of you, okay? But who can summarize for me what happens on the Day of Atonement offering? What happens at the very end? And we're just going to summarize these ten verses. Anyone? Correct. They, well, okay. Yes, they were all granted atonement for all of their sins. First, the priest does a confession for his own sins. Then he does a confession for the sins of all the priests. Then he does a confession for all of the people. And the grand finale is... Huh? No, the goat, we, we have the same text of the goat going out to the desert. That's preceding this. One goat goes out to the desert. The other one goes into the Holy of Holies. And, and, but at the end of it, the grand finale, the end of it is, um, is that the people are granted atonement. Right? I mean that, and that is the Yom Kippur ritual. And, um, and, um, and we look at verse 34 on the, on the top of page 4. It says, this shall be to you a law for all time. In other words, it doesn't matter if you have a tabernacle. It doesn't matter if you have priests. It doesn't matter if you have goats. It doesn't matter if you have a wilderness. you got to do this every single year. And we still do it. We, it's called Yom Kippur. And we actually read this whole section from Scripture every single year on Yom Kippur. And during part of our liturgy, we actually 
I mean, don't ask your Jewish friends about this, okay? Because our worship services on Yom Kippur start about 8 a.m. They go till about 2, 2.30, okay? What I'm about to describe to you takes place at like 1.45. <laughs> Most of your friends have left, okay? Me and the cantor, we're still there. We're singing away. We're doing our thing, but, you know... The Lord should bless them. They are very pious people. They really don't get into until they're at home, praying on their own in their inner sanctum, okay? And um, so don't quiz your Jewish friends on this, all right? You can embarrass them. And, um, but we actually act this out. We actually, we actually like read these passages. We read the passages during the scripture reading, and then we go through repeating what happened, and we act it out. As if to say, God, please, you've got to do this for us again. And we fast, just like it says here. And that we still do. And it's one of the most universally observed Jewish rituals is fasting on Yom Kippur. And we don't, for 25 hours from sundown, from, you know, from like a half an hour before sundown on the night before Yom Kippur until a half an hour after sunset on, the, on, on Yom Kippur itself, we eat nothing, we drink nothing, we don't shower, we don't anoint ourselves with oil, don't have marital relations, but honestly, like, if, who wants to get near your spouse if you <laughs> haven't eaten, haven't drunk, and you haven't showered for the last, to, takes care of itself, let me just tell you, okay? And you're not allowed to wear leather shoes because it provides comfort. We still do that, but this is the words of the, of the prophets that we read, which tells us the kind of atonement that God really wants. So, um, new volunteer to read from Isaiah. Someone of the female gender. We've had a lot of males reading tonight. Any, any women who, brave souls, who want to read for us tonight? No? Yes. Oh, great. She will? Okay, you will? Okay, great. Please. The rabbis who edited the liturgy for Yom Kippur were brilliant because it is easy to be pious in synagogue on Yom Kippur, just like it is easy, I'm sure, to be pious in church on Easter or Christmas. The harder part is when you leave the doors of your house of worship. And the, edit, the rabbis who edited were brilliant because they give this great rebuke from Isaiah saying, don't pat yourself on the back too hard for doing this fast because this isn't the fast that I truly desire. Now, I'm not an expert in Christian theology, but what I would say is a big difference between the way that the Jewish people understand Isaiah is different than how Pauline Christianity understands Isaiah. We don't look at the ritual of Hebrew scripture 
and the ethics and justice of the prophets as either or. It's a both and relationship. And I'm not saying that as a diss on Christianity at all, but I'm saying it is a difference of the critique that Paul gave to Judaism. And the critique back would say, fair criticism, but you can circumcise your heart and you can circumcise your flesh. It can be both and, and they can be symbiotic. And they can have a symbiosis and a reciprocity with one another. And that's why on the day of Yom Kippur, we read both Leviticus 16 and Isaiah 58. They need to both be there in our hearts, side by side, duking it out. Or finding, or better than duking it out, living inside one soul together, strengthening each other. You know, that's the ideal. What we're going to look at now is the Mishneh Torah. The Mishneh Torah is written by Maimonides, Rabbi Moses ben Maimon. Maimonides is um, from the 11th century. He's from Spain. He's a jurist. He is a physician. He's um, a philosopher. He was the physician to the court of Egypt. And he is famous also for um, marrying Aristotelian thought uh, with traditional Jewish um, knowledge and understanding. This is from the first code of Jewish law known as the Mishneh Torah, and which is another name for Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the retelling. Mishneh Torah means the repetition of the Torah. And so this is his, some, a couple of his writings on atonement. And um, can I have uh, someone who hasn't read yet to read this Mishneh Torah from repentance, um, Laws of Repentance 1-3? Anyone? Brave soul, any gender? Please. Pause there. Repentance in Hebrew is, is called tshuva. It literally means returning. And the sages teach us that the that tshuva, repentance, is so powerful that it existed before the universe was created. And keep going with repentance atones for all sins. Yeah, the essence of this verse is the end part. He doesn't fall on the day that he turns away from his wickedness. In other words, when you choose to leave your wickedness in God's eyes, you are on the process of tshuva. You are on the process of repentance. Keep going. So what he's saying is, guys, I got some bad news for you. If you didn't do tshuva, if you didn't do repentance, and you go into Yom Kippur, do not think 
that there's so much inherent holiness and power in this day that it is going to atone for you. It ain't going to work. You have to atone first. Okay. And um, actually, I'm going to make an executive decision, which is that we're going to make this my last text. And um, I know I didn't only got through like half of it, but you know, this is... This is the, uh, I'll, I'll do a short version of the conclusion, but um, we're going to skip the sacrifice and prayer. We're going to just focus on atonement because we're getting close to Yom Kippur, and this, this text is so, is so important. Rambam writes, Maimonides writes, neither repentance nor the day of atonement atone for any save for sins committed between man and God. For instance, one who ate forbidden food or had forbidden... Um, coition and the like. But sins between man and man, for instance, one who injures his neighbor or curses his neighbor or plunders him or offends him in like manner, is ever not absolved until he makes restitution for what he owes and begs the forgiveness of his neighbor. Let's pause there. God is saying, don't come to the cashier on Yom Kippur for trend. You can come to the cashier on Yom Kippur and check out with your bill of goods if it is, I ate a bacon double cheeseburger. That's not kosher, by the way. <laughs> you know, I took the Lord's name in vain. I violated the Sabbath. But if you insulted your wife, if you cheated on a business deal, if you stole from a friend, don't come to the cashier on Yom Kippur until you take care of all of those other deals that you have going on. You've got to go to them directly, make amends, ask forgiveness, then you can do tshuva. Then you can repent before God. You want to understand this? You talk to anybody who's gone through the 12-step program. You talk to anybody who has really worked the steps, any addict, any drunk who has gone through AA or NA and really worked the steps and done what's called a fourth step, you'll understand this. And though we make restitution of the monetary debt, he is obliged to pacify him and to beg forgiveness. Not a much just pay him back. You have to really, like, ask for forgiveness. Um... Even he offended not his neighbor in aught save in words, he's obliged to appease him. Even if you just insulted him, you still have to go and ask for forgiveness. But, boy, our society could learn a lot from this text. Um, if his neighbor refuses a committee of three friends to forgive him, he should bring to implore and beg of him. If he still refuses, he should bring a second, even a third committee. And if he remains obstinate, he may leave him to himself and pass on. For the sin then rests upon him who refuses forgiveness. You don't have to keep begging for forgiveness for forever. You go, you make a sincere apology, maybe you even bring three friends as witnesses. You try a first time, you try a second time, you try a third time. Your buddy doesn't forgive you. Your slate is clean with God. Now he's carrying your sin. But if it happened to be his master, he should go and come to him for forgiveness even a thousand times until he does forgive him. By his master, he means his rabbi. 
If you insulted your teacher, your authority, your parent, you know, somebody like that, you got, you got to keep going back and back. But for the average relationship, not so. I'm going to skip connection between sacrifice and prayer. I will just say that the Thanksgiving offering that you see in, in, Exodus, in Leviticus 7, that is the one offering that we still have in the Jewish tradition a liturgical component for. There are very specific reasons for why the Israelites needed to offer that specific offering of the Thanksgiving offering, and we still have that today with when we survive a life-threatening situation. So if you were in a car accident, you survived. You, were in, you survived surgery. You actually come to synagogue and you say this one special blessing that thanks God for his, his goodness to you. We still have that, and that is, I think, the most direct vestige of the actual rituals that were done in the tabernacle and then in the temple that still reside in the synagogue. Um, I will end with this verse because I think it's one of the most important verses of the entire Torah, which is Exodus 19, verse 1, and 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the whole Israelite community and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, I spent the beginning of my career in Dallas, Texas. And they had, before they built this monstrosity of the Texas Cowboy Stadium, has anybody seen this new thing? Like, you can, you can see it from space, okay? It's so big. And it has this, re, you know, and it has this huge, giant, retractable roof. It used to be that the Cowboys played in a stadium with a hole in the top. And Texans would say, the reason why the Texas Stadium, the Cowboy Stadium, has a hole in its roof is so that God can watch down on his team. <laughs> now, that was when the Cowboys were winning football games, okay? And they later said, they built this new stadium with a retractable roof so that God doesn't have to watch down on his team <laughs> when he doesn't want to. So what I learned during my years in Texas is that God may not be a Texan, but the Hebrew scripture is written, is most accurately translated into Texan rather than English. Because in English, we don't have a word for the second person plural. But Hebrew does. And Texan does. In Texan, it's y'all. And it's a very useful word. And it says, and so the correct translation of this is, speak to the whole Israelite community and say to them, y'all shall be holy. It's given in the second person plural. You as a community shall be holy, for your God, the Lord, am holy. Um, this, I think, is one of the great messages of all of Hebrew scripture is that because God has this unique quality of sanctity, of kedushah, of holiness. I know you guys have learned about that word kadosh, which means holy, which means unique, set-apartness. One of the ways that we um, emulate God is by, as a community, being holy. And it's not enough for just individual holy people to exist. We have to work to get our whole community to be holy. And that's how we, as a community, are godlike. 
And I have contained here several commentaries. I'm just going to summarize one of them, which is from Ramban, Nachmanides, from the 11th century from Spain. And um, what he says is, what this means is, this is not a specific law. We have all these very specific laws throughout Hebrew scripture. So why do we have this general principle, you will all be holy? It means you will go beyond the letter of the law. You will not just follow the commandments that are in the Torah. You will go beyond it. You will be a better person than you need to be. And that's what it means to be holy. There's a lot of different interpretations of what it means to be holy, but that's what Rambans is, and I think that's a great note to end on, is for us to truly be a holy people, for us to truly be a holy society, is number one, it's about the collective, about everybody working together to be holy. It's not about just the individual. And number two, it's being better than we need to be. It's not enough to just check off the boxes. So how about we stop here? And um, we are at 828. I'm happy to spend, um, so right at 90 minutes, Tim. And, uh, but we'll, I'm happy to stay for another 10 minutes if um, people want to ask questions or have a conversation really about um, anything we covered tonight or anything you, know, you wanted to ever ask a rabbi and you never had a chance to, <laughs> within reason. I reserve the right to say no. Yes. And hold on just a second. You are, no, you came after. You're, oh, you're Bill. Yes, I have my, yes. Bill and Mandy and Christina. Okay. You asked two different questions. Which, which show your bias. But, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a very Christian bias. Correct. Yeah. But it's an, and it's an after this world bias. Yeah. Yeah. Judaism. Okay, so that is one of the fundamental differences in worldview between Judaism and Christianity. There are hints in Hebrew scripture of a belief in an afterlife. You see Jacob saying, I'm going to hang my hoary head in Sheol. Okay? And despite what some Jews will tell you who say, oh, we don't have a belief in afterlife. We don't have a belief in heaven and hell. We do, but it's different than Christianity, and it's much less um, worshipped. Okay? The reason why, like we see this later on in Deuteronomy in um, um, where, where God says, I'm going to place before you a blessing and a curse. And the blessing is that you will follow God. In other words, we don't do mitzvot for the, we don't do commandments. We aren't holy because of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. We do it because we have the opportunity to walk in God's ways. We have a God who wants to be in relationship with us. And God gave us a guidebook on how to do that. And so why wouldn't we want to do that? Why do I need an external reward for that? It is an honor just to serve God. That's, that's the gift. The gift is getting to serve God. I have no idea what's going to happen to me after but I do know that I can serve God now, okay? And God says, I have this great quality. 
It's called holiness. And guess what? I'm going to tell you a secret. You have the ability to be that. And that's our, that's our desire and our challenge and our aspiration to be godlike. Not by lording it over people, but by trying to, to be better than we need to be. Does that answer the question? And that doesn't deny the fact that there might be an afterlife. Right. God, Elijah is one of the characters who doesn't die. Okay? And we look at that and we say, Elijah didn't die. And Elijah appears throughout rabbinic literature as someone who doesn't die. Elijah is going to be the person who um, announces the coming of the Messiah. Okay? And Elijah has a major role in Jewish rabbinic thought. But the reason why, you asked two different questions. You asked, is there an afterlife? And why should we be holy? Yes, there's an afterlife. And the reason you want to be holy is because God told you to. And you have the ability to do that on this earth. Um, other, other questions? Great question, by the way. Yes? Yeah, thank you for thank you for teaching me that. Yeah, but um, but he didn't get that from. I mean, he got that from all of the rabbinic literature. He didn't he didn't get that from Sermon on the Mount, even though um, um, I don't think Maimonides Maimonides, pro Maimonides probably knew the Sermon on the Mount, but he didn't get that from Sermon on the Mount. He that's an inherited tradition. I mean, what I would say is is that. I mean, you'll, you see a lot of this in Tractate of Yoma, um, which deals with all the values of Yom Kippur, that is in the Talmud, and a lot of that is written in the Mishnah, which is contemporaneous with Jesus. So, you know, Jesus of Nazareth was probably learning in some of the same study halls as the rabbis who wrote the Mishnah for Yoma. Um, but thank you for that. I, I didn't know that. Um, yes, please. Great question. Our, uh, he asked, um, and just a second, you are Grant. Grant asked, um, are all of the Jewish people today descendants of the original Israelites? No, um, because we are, uh, we are both an ethnicity and a quote unquote religion. We're most akin to a people or a nation, right? Like we are a nation of immigrants, right? You can come to America and become an American, or you can be born to an American. Either way makes you an American. And um, if you, you know, and you can go, you know, if, if you go through the, you know, the, the analogy that I talk about is like, you can have, you know, we have a law in our country that you, if you're born in the United States, you are a citizen, okay? So you can have a 
Chinese-American who was born in Chinatown to first-generation immigrants and is raised completely in a Chinese culture and maybe doesn't even learn English. And you can have a kid who was um, born to Canadian parents but always loved American history, move to America with his parents, speaks perfect English, knows everything about American culture, has a total American identity, but when election day comes, the Chinese kid can vote and the Canadian kid cannot. Because we, as a country, have a system for how you become an American. Judaism also has a system for how you can become Jewish. We, unlike other faith traditions, we do not seek out converts. However, we do accept them. In fact, we push them away for a few times until they no, I'm, being, I'm not joking. We literally do. Um, we, we literally say, like, are you, are you sure you want this? And we send them away a couple of times. And then if we see sincerity, then we, we welcome them. And, uh, and the reason why is because of the way that Judaism understands the, the um, covenant with Noah and Noah's descendants from the book of Genesis. And the way that the rabbis understand the, the I know I'm going a, a little bit off topic here, but the way that the, the rabbis understand the covenant with Noah, it's called the Noahide laws, is that we believe, talking about world to come, we believe that every ethical monotheist has a place in the world to come. They don't need to become Jewish. That the covenant at Sinai wasn't for everybody. That's, that's what the election of Israel means. There's no problem with, you know, you know, Pastor Tim saying after worship, let's all go out for those bacon double cheeseburgers that Rabbi Glickman was talking about. <laughs> There'd be a big problem if I did that. And, um, and not only is there not a problem, there's not a problem in my mind if Tim does that. Do you understand what I mean by the difference? Like, in some, in some faith traditions, that kind of pluralism doesn't exist. The belief is, no, you have to believe what I believe in order to have a place in the world to come. I do not believe that. I believe that Christians are fine staying Christians. You don't have to become Jews. Um, I just sometimes wish that there was reciprocity with that belief system. There's not always reciprocity with that belief system. Um, any other thoughts? No, I mean, I mean, I think that's the big one. Is that the big one is like just just let me stay Jewish and stay alive, not get made fun of, and not have my synagogue attacked. You know, that's enough. Like, really. Um, we, right now, I, I don't like to focus a lot on anti-Semitism, but it's, um, it's worth noting that right now, um, we're having the highest rates of anti-Semitic violent attacks in this country that we've seen in 100 years. Think of, do, you weren't here in 2014? 
there was a there was a gunman who came to the Jewish community center and killed three people and then went over to Village Shalom and killed another person. And that wasn't because, and now it so happened that he ended up killing three Christian people, four Christian people. Um, that's not because he's an idiot, okay? It's because we live, thank God, in this space of America that has this blessing of so many open-minded people who think that, oh, yeah, you know what? There's this musical competition at the Jewish Community Center, and wow, all of, I have all these great friends from public school who are Jewish, and I know that that's a great community center, just like the YMCA is a great community center, you know, and the Islamic Center of Johnson County does great things for our community, and so they're having a big audition for... Um, all the high schoolers to give them a scholarship for a singing competition. So I'm going to go there with my grandkid. And that's why they were there in that parking lot. But the gunman wasn't seeking out members of CORE. He was seeking out members of my synagogue. And, um, and the gunman in Poway, California. And the gunman in Pittsburgh. You know, um, I spend enough money in my synagogue on security that I could hire another youth advisor. We spend in the tens of thousands a year, every year, and every Jewish house of worship in this town does. Um, so, and let me tell you, anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem. It's not Jews who are shooting up other Jews. It's a non-Jewish problem. And, um, and even though in Europe, it is an Islamic extremism problem in Europe, and the anti-Semitism is in Europe, people are fleeing France in great numbers. Many people say it's not safe to wear a yarmulke in public in France. And that is coming out of the Islamic extremist community. Here in America, it's Christian white supremacists. The same people who hate the blacks hate the Jews. And um, it's, a, it's a virus, you know? It's a, it's a pandemic. But it's not, as, it's not as bad as it used to be a long time ago. Um, and certainly things like, you know, Good Faith Network and other great organizations in town are part of the solution. But, yeah, it's still, still a problem. Um, but I think that just um, allowing Jews to be Jews, allowing them to worship without any fear of being teased, being harassed, anything like that. Um, and um, not expecting Jews to become Christians, I think. Like, really, that would be enough. And, um, you know, I, I can't tell you what, like, a theological uh, earthquake it was when the Catholic Church had Vatican II and put Nostra Tate in, in our times into place and said, no, the Jews actually have their own covenant with God. It's huge. It was radically huge. So, I mean, don't think that organized religion can't be part of the solution. It can be part of the solution. It's not saying that the Catholic Church, like every system of worship, has, doesn't have plenty of its own problems. 
but you have to call organizations out when they act good, and you have to call organizations out when they don't act good. And there's also a lot of, um, there's also a ton of materials that are coming out now of, um, I forget which Pope Pius was alive during the Holocaust, but the amount that the pontiff knew about what was going on in Nazi Germany. The amount that he knew was astounding. And the amount that the church knew what was going on and um, was astounding. So I think that Nostra Tate I think, is a great first step. I think that the amount of work that Rockhurst University does, I mean, the way that they battle, they're, they're partners in fighting against hate and fighting against anti-Semitism like, like nobody's business. I mean, Father Curran, he's awesome. Father Curran is awesome on these issues. And um, so that's, that's what I would say. Is, um, just let Jews be Jews, and we'll let Christians be Christians. Um, and we should find the other things that we have great common cause with, like, you know, we may, we may not agree about the afterlife, but we do agree um, that we can, if not eliminate, we can really, really cut back on homelessness. Like, I know what work you guys do on homelessness. I know that's a, you know, we, we can all get behind that. That's not a denominational or theological thing. Uh, we have the wealthiest, you know, most successful country in the world. We can figure out how to get people fed. We, if, we, you know, if we can make this new rocket to go to the moon again, we can figure out how to get people fed. We can figure out how to get... And then what I would say about messianism is go back and read those verses in Isaiah that we disagree about, okay? Go back and read those, uh, those verses on Isaiah that we disagree about, and we disagree about what it means, and we disagree about who he's talking about. But then read about the world that Isaiah is describing. Say, okay, you know, um, we may disagree about who's in charge and what, what's the secret code to get into the next world, but we can all agree what we need to do to create that world that Isaiah is describing for this world we can actually have a whole lot of agreement you know, about what could it look like for the proverbial lion to lie down with the proverbial lamb. We can, we can do this. Yeah, we'll take one last question, so one hand up. I feel your pain. Yes. Um, yes, it is. I'm sorry? Um, so, the short answer is nobody has all the answers. The longer answer that I would say is um, I think there are some things that I've seen that are, are working in small units, and I don't know if it's transferable over to the Christian community because I don't know enough about Christian worship and practice, okay? Um, one is I think we need to accept the fact that the next generation's version, like I just gave you an hour and a half lecture about how the rabbis faced a cataclysm, distilled, distilled the book of Leviticus down to its core values and figured out how we can take it with us to all the little towns that we're exiled in 
in Morocco and Eastern Europe and Western Europe and North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula and all these places so that the values could survive because the values were what was important. So, yeah, we don't have the attacks of the Romans coming to destroy the temple. But are the attacks, are the values attacks of TikTok, of racism, of all, all the ills of our society, are they any less bad? Maybe not, and maybe no less dangerous. So what we have to do is, I think we have to do sometimes do some radical restructuring. Um, and Judaism, what I've seen has worked, are a few things. One is people still want community. People want people to care for them and to care for people. So some things I've found a lot of success in the Jewish community. There's this great organization right now called One Table, which basically you can go to the One Table app and you can find a Friday night, Shabbat, Sabbath dinner going on in someone's home, basically in any town that you're in. And you can go to the app, and it's designed for young adults. It's designed for Gen Z and young millennials. And so you can find dinners hosted by young adults for young adults. It's not to get you into synagogue. It's not you to get you to keep, start keeping kosher. It's not to get you to do all those other things. It is simply to have community, light the Sabbath candles, say the blessings on the Sabbath candles, say the blessing on the wine, say the blessing on the bread, and share a sacred meal together of recognizing that we are sharing in the bounty of sharing a Sabbath meal together. It's been really successful. Like literally like thousands of people have shared these meals. So what's the, is Sunday night dinner the big dinner in Christian communities? Sunday midday. So imagine if there was an app for Sunday lunch. Skip church. Come for lunch. <laughs> I think you might have some takers. And if we take that verse from Isaiah really seriously, you know, and somebody at the table says, yeah, um, you don't have to pay anything for this lunch, and I don't want you to give to the church, okay? However, I'm really involved with harvesters. And we have X number of people who have food insecurity in Kansas City. Um, you know, after your Sunday lunch that you found us on your app, if you wouldn't mind going to that same app and pressing the Venmo button and giving what you would have spent on lunch today to someone else, really appreciate it. I think you'd have some takers. So I think, that, I, think that, I think that the next gen is aspirational. I think they want a better world. I think that all the things that we see, um, I'm not being political when I say this, you know, but like, you know, like BLM, you know, Black Lives Matter, we can have differences about says, you know, some of their platforms. I, I have big political issues with BLM um, because I really don't like their stance on Israel. Um, but I can also, at the same time, I can recognize that this is an uprising of a lot of young people who are saying, guess what, I'm sick of racism. I'm, I'm done with, we're done with it. Like we should be past this already. And um, let's get past it now, okay? And uh, so I think that those kinds of small grassrootsy things, I think will have a lot of impact. And I, and I see, like you're probably seeing, in, are you seeing growth in the evangelical community in, amongst young people? No? Really? 
I thought that some of the right-wing churches were growing. They are. Really? Okay, so our more orthodox movements are growing in that area. They're growing because people want the community, they desire the structure, and also demographics get on their side. The Jewish people, the liberal Jewish community, of which I'm a part of, we marry late, we tend to marry in our 30s, um, and we tend to have children below replacement level. We have, we have the lowest, um, we have one of the lowest childbearing rates of any uh, group in the United States, liberal Jews, okay? So we have like 1.6 kids per couple, not replacement levels. However, when you go to the modern Orthodox community, they're having four to five kids per couple and they're getting married at age 24. You go to the ultra-Orthodox community, Hasidim and non-Hasidic ultra-Orthodox community, they're getting married at 19 and 20 and they're having seven, eight, nine kids um, per family. Well, you don't need to be, have a PhD in statistics to see which of the, from liberal to more ortho, to, to the most um, ritually observant, it, it sort of youngest to oldest, okay? So the liberal synagogues are becoming older quicker. All right, thank you all very much. Bye.